Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, another wonderful duet with Tim and Charlie. Shalom. <laughs> I my intros are boring, sorry. Shalom lacha. I need to I need to um locate my Okay, so yeah, I found it. So here's what we're going to do in this episode. We're going to have an Andy quote from Sir Teange, which is our custom now. And we are going to talk about a book by a guy I met. I had lunch with this guy. Mm. Interesting. And we're going to talk about a book about congregational authority. And, uh, and then Tim is going to close in Proverbs 30 with our final meditation in God's word. And so let's read our Andy quote, which is again from the intellectual life by A.G. Sertayage. This is in his section on the organization of life. This is on page 42. And he's talking about, uh, I believe here, let me just double check. Simplification is the is the underheading. Simplification, and here I'm just I, I kind of want to read the whole paragraph, but it's the last sentence that is pithy and kind of caught me. So, slacken the tempo of your life. Receptions, visits that give rise to fresh obligations, formal intercourse with one's neighbors, all the complicated ritual of an artificial life that so many men of the world secretly detest, these things are not for a worker, an intellectual worker. Right. Society life is fatal to study. Display and dissipation of mind are mortal enemies of thought. Here's the last line. When one thinks of a man of genius, one does not imagine him dining out. Mm. So imagine like a really smart, genius of a man who's made some amazing discovery you're not imagining him out on the town partying with his buddies you're probably imagining him in his office reading a book writing something down maybe and, there's a chalkboard involved and fasting and fasting <laughs> i don't know why that came into it yeah he's, he's not eating <laughs> so I, I i just like that quote when one i'll read it again that last sentence when one thinks of a man of genius, one does not imagine him dining out. It, it's almost like the, the life of the society, the, the entertainment, that kind of craziness of life is antithetical in Sertayange's mind to the, to the intellectual life. And not that you can't dabble, but I, I like that too, where it's like you go out there and you see all these people and what does that do? It brings all these other obligations up. And then you're going going there and you're doing this and you secretly hate it, but you keep doing it. And all the while, you're not reading any of your books. You're not accomplishing any of the things you wanted to. Anyway, so stop dining out. Go home and <laughs> read a book. So anyway, <laughs> well, so that's number one. We did number one. Number two, we have that thing. Books and business. Let's talk about a book. You're on. Okay, so here's the book. It's one of the uh, nine Marks books, and uh, it's I think there's a series. It's the Church Basics series. 
That's what they call it. This one is written by Jonathan Lehman, who affectionately referred to me as Charlie from the front row Mm -hmm. at the conference I went to. At that time, I had a much burlier beard and it, it, it stuck out anyway. And I sat in the front row. So anyway, so, uh, the title of the work is understanding the congregation's authority, understanding the congregation's authority. So this is a topic that most of our circle of churches would likely agree, uh, with the ends of what we're talking about here, that in the church, the structure of the church, uh, the congregation is the one who's really in charge. Now, that you you should have a pastor or pastors who are leading a congregation, and a congregation should be willing to follow the lead of the pastors. And then you have servants in your church who, as certain needs arise that aren't prayer and the preaching of the word, and you should uh, have these servants selected to do those things. But the servants, you know, the deacons, that's what the word deacon means is servant. Those do not hold actual authority in the church. They might have influence, but from a polity structure, it is a elder or pastor-led congregational government. And uh, that's what I was taught in seminary. So I was taught in my undergrad. Mm-hmm. That's what faith teaches. And so ultimately, that's what this book is about. And we, we wouldn't really have much of an issue to make with the conclusions that Lehman draws. However, I think there's some maybe some wonky bumps on the way to those conclusions that I think are worth noting. And so uh, he's, he's going to just kind of walk through, and I think to applaud him, they're trying to make resources that are just easily accessible. Mm-hmm. Not very long, right. not overly complicated, but here you go. Um, so he talks about those two parts of church authority the pastors and the church. And he does start in like the Ephesians 4 kind of mindset where it is the elders, the pastors that train the church to do the work of the ministry. And he kind of lays out those two sides. But then he's going to try to go on this kind of building, uh, shall we say it, a biblical theology of the congregation's rule. Right. And where he starts is with Adam. and Adam is given this mandate to rule. And that is a rule that is a mediation of God's rule on earth. Mm-hmm. And then because of sin, he, he actually legitimately says he fires Adam, kicks him out of the garden. You don't rule anymore. And he kind of walks through Moses and Abraham and Which is David. interesting that it's like he doesn't get to rule anymore. Yeah. He kicks him out of the garden and he's like, you don't get to rule anymore. Yep. Like it's broken at that point. And, and a lot of the amillennial guys, they don't, they don't actually like that they see it's like a, a broken down rule like but but man still does have a mandate to rule yeah and, well then into the post-millennial circle mm-hmm. where not only is that a very real mandate mm-hmm. but it that we will succeed in that mandate correct which is why christian nationalism is so important right mm-hmm. that if we don't do that well how are we ever going to actually fulfill the great commission right and that we should expect that the whole world all the nations are going to be discipled. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a little footnote right there, go see Doug Wilson. Anyway, so <laughs> so he, he does. He has a section 
uh, the it's chapter three. It's called Adam had a job. Oh, but Adam got here. Sadly, Adam did not live as the perfect priest king. He did not represent God's rule, but sought his own rule. So God fired Adam, evicting him from the garden. And he goes on to talk about Abraham. He then offered the job to Abraham. And then to Moses. And then David. And then he gets into talking about the new covenant where God finally promises, you know, I'm going to finally make this all right. And uh, we'll... It's really weird how it's like offering the same thing from Adam to Abram to Moses. He's going through all of the covenants. But where's the covenant for Adam? Yeah. There isn't one. There's no covenant between God and Adam. That's like typical Reformed theology with yes. the covenant of works. So I wonder if he ascribes a, to the covenant of works. It's an interesting conglomeration of things. So then eventually, where, where does this come to a head? So you had Adam. So here, these are literally the headings of the chapter. You had uh, the story of the priest king Adam. Mm-hmm. And this is in the chapter, Adam had a job. So you have this priest king Adam. Oh, but he gets fired. You have Abraham, you have Moses, you have David, you have the promise of the new covenant, and then Jesus and the church. So you can see the progression of authority. Adam was given authority. Nope. Moses, Abraham, David. Nope. Jesus and his church. Now, what is he going to say here? The Bible has a lot of names for Jesus based on the work he came to do. Among them, he is characterized as the new Adam the seed of Abraham, the new Israel, and David's greater son. Why? Because he finally did the job they were supposed to do. And in fact, we would agree with him in in essence that he is going to be the perfect king Mm -hmm. in his future kingdom, Mm -hmm. which is not now. But uh, Jesus rules on God's behalf as the firstborn of the new creation. He is visibly reestablished. He visibly reestablished God's kingdom in his own person. Which again, we we wouldn't necessarily have that many too many too many issues. He is the king, so certainly the king does institute a kingdom. Problem, he's not on earth. Right, the king's <laughs> not here. I the was king's talking, not here. Talking to somebody just this weekend about that. You can't have a kingdom on earth without the king. Yes, and so you can see how he's drawn this connection. Mm-hmm. Adam had a job, he failed. Now here's the second Adam, and here's the kingdom, and we're kind of getting into some shaky ground here. This is the glory of the God. And I'm cutting out a lot of material here. Just I'm reading kind mm-hmm. of the highlights of paragraphs. Sure. This is the glory of the gospel. We rise because he is risen. We are declared righteous because he is declared righteous. And here's the kicker. We reign because he reigns. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's true, but that's the kingdom. Is it true eschatologically or well, is it true right now? Daniel 7 talks about it and it's eschatological. Yes. So how he's going to apply it is that the church is going to reign as the mediator of the rule of the second Adam right now. Hmm. Do you see, this is uh, page 24, paragraph four. Do you see when you become united to Christ by faith, so you believe the gospel you brought into the church, the same office which he holds falls to you, the office of Adam, that he failed in, the office of Moses, Abraham, David, they all failed. It's now to you as a mediator of Christ because you're united to him. I wonder if we ever get fired. Well, he actually, interestingly enough... Is that excommunication? Interestingly enough, (laughs) Lehman wrote another book titled Don't Fire Your Church Members. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Oh, that is interesting. Like tra- about equipping and training. Sure, sure. Yeah. It's interesting that he would come to that conclusion about the mission and the goal of the church. Uh-huh. But then here, you know, apparently now in Christ, we can't be fired. Okay. Maybe that's his reasoning. Okay. Uh, anyway, you become, because of your union with him, a priest king once again. Okay. Down further, the church occupies this office corporately, like Israel did. But also, every member of the church occupies this office individually. Okay, so you see what he did there. He's basically equating Israel and the church. Israel occupied the office. Now the church occupies the office. Okay, so this is basically, I mean, I don't know if they really believe in, uh, I thought they were premillennial, but this is basically a reformed amillennial replacement theology well, uh, position. So I think... And I recognize he's trying to substantiate congregational rule. Yeah. And so I think that that right there is is the nugget we're after. Yeah. Is that he's going through some really odd Old Testament exegetical hoops to justify congregational rule when, and he, this my my biggest critique of this, mm-hmm. is this just seems like a bunch of nonsense to me. That none of these Old Testament passages, the New Covenant passage in Jeremiah 31 the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, God's edicts to Moses or to Abraham, none of those are written intended to talk about congregational government. Mm -hmm. And you're drawing this really, I would call a a very um, thin thread of biblical theology. Mm -hmm. And then threading the church into that. And Mm -hmm. I just think that that is unnecessary. Yeah, I don't think that it's uh, even warranted biblically. I don't no. think he's he's created. I mean, a- sh- sure, you know, there's there's some phrases and some like, oh yeah, Christ is the second Adam, and okay, yeah, yeah. But the purpose of Christ being the second Adam isn't to substantiate congregational rule. Yeah, I, mean, I think he's got some some loose words pulling things together, but case in point, you know, let's go to a a, a natural, straightforward hermeneutic. There is no Jewish believer who would read any of those passages and think, congregational authority. You know, like, the, it's just, you're really grasping at something that's not there. That's my sense of it. Now, that being said, he, as already mentioned, we would agree with his conclusion. Right. An elder-led congregational government. Don't like any of his Old Testament theology building up to it type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Think that's a bunch of nonsense. So let's get to the next chapter. After Adam had a job. I prefer the pastoral led. Pastoral, yeah. I know it's the same office, but. The bishop led. Let's go with bishop. Stop How's it. That Stop it. <laughs> I was just reading today. Um, in I a like com- the word pastor as far as the leadership yes. component. Yes. That title fits more of the manner and mode of the the leadership. Yeah, and that is our our common vernacular of the the pastor elder bishop the the office in the church is is the pastor. Uh, I was just reading in a in a Hebrews commentary earlier today and they're referring to some of the early bishops. That was the com- the common term, the bishop uh-huh. of so and so, you know. Uh, the Bishop of Rome. And you're like, ooh, you know, it's it's a pastor. Um, it, interesting that we use the word pastor. Some people use the word bishop. And then there are people that love the word elder now. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so uh, chapter four. So he talks about all this Adam having a job. It's getting transferred to the church member. 
don't really like that line of reasoning. That's our big summary there. Mm-hmm. Chapter four, now Jesus gives the job to the church. And I do think he's correct here. Not that it's the same job as Adam, Moses, Abraham, David, but that authority is given to the congregation to mediate its own matters. And he's going to go to some of the classic texts, like, for example, Matthew 18, which I do think is intended to instruct us on local church discipline and who has authority in such matters. So here's Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, tell the ecclesia, the assembly. Now, of course, this is the words of Jesus before the church is even formed, but I do think it is prescribed in that manner for us. If he doesn't pay attention to the church, the assembly, let him be like an unbeliever. And that's a decision of the church saying, we don't think he's actually a Christian because he won't repent. And attacks, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. So the picture of church discipline is you try to handle things amicably between ones and twos and threes. And if someone is in unrepentant sin and they won't reconcile, who stamps them as unbeliever? The ecclesia, the assembly. The assembly. And I think rightfully, uh, Jonathan Lehman is saying, this is Christ giving authority to the church to make those decisions. And what's going to follow in the rest of his book is a strong nine marks plea for legitimate church membership and legitimate church discipline. And uh, he has some call outs, some boxes of his text that he has throughout his book. And so uh, I just think these will highlight what he's talking about. So he's going to say, what is church membership? It's a covenant between believers whereby they affirm one another's professions of faith through the ordinances and agree to oversee one another's discipleship to Christ. So we have a like faith, we're participating in the ordinances together, and we're, deci- we're active in discipling one another. And if at some point your conversion uh, becomes questioned, uh, he says it this here, churches, not individuals, or Christ- churches, not individual Christians, fulfill the Great Commission. So who's making disciples of all the nations, and who's baptizing, and who is teaching? It's not me as an individual. I have to go fulfill this. I fulfill it as a member of my church, which makes perfect sense because the two ordinances of the church, the Lord's table and baptism, those are church activities, not mm-hmm. individual activities. So then he told us what church membership is. It's the church that's fulfilling that commission. What is a church? A group of Christians who jointly identify as followers of Jesus through regularly gathering in his name, preaching the gospel, and celebrating the ordinances. So what, it, what does it mean to be a member of the church? It's that you follow Jesus and you're practicing those ordinances in that community. Mm-hmm. So then, if you want to be a part of that assembly, who gets to decide if you're in? The congregation. The church. So very next thing he says, the church should vote. 
They should vote to receive, dismiss, or discipline members. They should vote to select pastors and deacons. And anything else that significantly impacts the integrity and viability of the church as a gospel ministry, the congregation should be voting to decide that. Mm-hmm. Who do we want to lead this? Who do you want to be our main servants? Yeah. Who do we want to be on our list? That's a group decision. It's not the pastor. It's not a couple influential dudes. The congregation meets. And uh, what I really like about the emphasis of a lot of the nine marks is it really reminds you, you know, business meetings matter, Mm. (laughs) you know? And uh, it's, it's not, you know, I feel like sometimes when we're voting on a new member at church, that that's like the, well, let's just get that out of the way so we can get to the real business. Have you ever feel like that? But it's like, okay, really quick, let's hear this testimony and vote on it. And then we'll get to the rest of these things that we need to vote on, you know? And it's like, all those other things are the backseat, man. Like, you know, uh, just trying to think of recently, we had an impromptu business meeting. We were talking about uh, architecture of the outside of the church, what landscaping. We're talking about, do we want river rock? Do we want rubber? You know, all these great, wonderful gospel decisions, right? And it's like, those things you could let the building committee handle, you know? Th- those aren't of primary importance to the gospel. But when you're bringing a member into your church, are they actually a Christian? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you don't take care of it on the front end, you're probably going to have some issues on the back end. Or it's like, you know, which is, by the way, you know, with infant uh, church membership, you have a lot of issues there. Like, you're admitting all these people who we know aren't genuine believers. Well, someday they will. But, you know, all that's, I, I like his emphasis on. Opening up a can. Opening up a big old can of <laughs> infant baptisms. And uh, I, I like as as poor of an exegesis he does through the Old Testament, which maybe that's not even equitable, you know. He's he's a nice guy. I've, I've spoken with him. The church is a New Testament organization. Yeah. So this is what some people, they, they need to go to the Old Testament for. I'm like, no. Okay, what do you have in the Old Testament? You have a country, Israel. In the New Testament, you don't have that. You have an assembly. You have yep. a church. So when you're developing your polity, methodologically, you need to go to the body of literature which talks about it. Exactly. The New exactly. Testament. And that's one of uh, like Baptist distinctives and New Testament church order by Kevin Bowder. Like that's one of his main points is that if you're going to develop a Baptist ecclesiology, a, ba- a Baptist study of the church, you need to go to the New Testament because that's where it's found. Yeah. So, so he's like methodologically off. Just wrap, I mean, I just, sometimes I feel like an author try, is trying to be too cute. And it just seems like, it's just like, why, why are we, why are we focusing on <laughs> all these things of the Old Testament that have nothing to do with this? Now, to be fair, that would, you know, we say that from our position has nothing to do with it. Obviously, he would take a different viewpoint sure. to that. Uh, but. That would be my my critique is that a lot of wonky Old Testament things going on there. But I think the conclusion argued from the text you would assume, Matthew 18, for example, does give you a nice basis to think through the authority of the congregation once he's interacting with the New Testament passages that deal with it. And so um, 
Yeah, I would just get a copy of it and rip out the first three chapters <laughs> and then read like four through the end and you'll be golden. Okay. So I I, I, I would I would give it a low rating. Okay. I would think it's still good. Um, but I think you a lot of things that could confuse at the beginning, I'd give it maybe like a two or a three okay. on our goodness scale. I would encourage you to pick up Baptist Distinctives and New Testament Church Order by Bowder. Be a a better better buy. This would be supplemental. So let's have a final meditation on God's Word. So I've been working through Proverbs chapter 30, and we are now on verse 18. Three things are too wonderful for me, for I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displeases her mistress. So I'm going to stop there. We're looking at two different sets. Uh, Two times it's three things or for four. Does that sound a little bit familiar? Amos. That's right. So we have the same number parallelism in Proverbs 30 as we do in Amos chapters 1 and 2. Whereas Amos is pronouncing judgments against various nations, here we have wisdom being imparted to the reader uh, from the mouth of Agur. So we have the three things that are too wonderful for me and four that I do not understand. These are good things. And in the next set, we have bad things. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. So you have this good, and then you have this bad. In between, you have this proverb about the adulteress. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. That proverb functions as like a, um, a transition, a transitional proverb between the good and the bad. So let's talk about the good first. Three things are too wonderful for me, for I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. So we have four things here, an eagle and a serpent. Okay, so we have two animals, an eagle and a serpent. And then we have two man-ish kind of things. You have a ship, which would be constructed by a man and then the way of a man with a virgin. The text does, uh, um, it it highlights that last one. It's building towards the last one, the way of a man with a virgin, and we'll talk about that. But that is the normal, correct order of creation. It is part of the three things that are too wonderful for me and four that I do not understand. Then the adulteress is in the next line, uh, creating the contrast uh, to the the virgin in in uh, verse 19. Okay, so you have the way of an eagle in the sky. Now, what is the way of an eagle in the sky? The key word here is way. Uh, hopefully, you, I guess I should have said that. The, what is the way of an eagle? Well, you can't see it. It's just kind of flying around. It leaves no trail. It's just flying around uh, in the sky. And this is a mystery. It's a wonder. It's an amazing thing. It's something, what's the word that Agur uses? Wonderful. It's related to the the sky. 
And then, so, so that's number one. Number two is another animal. We have a serpent on a rock. Similarly to the eagle in the sky, what is the way of a serpent on a rock? Well, there, it leaves no trace because it just kind of slithers along. And plus, how in the world does it do that? How does a snake move? I mean, it's kind of weird how the thing kind of crawls around on its belly and just kind of like, shh, 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 there it goes. Okay, so both of these things have to do with locomotion. They have to do with movement. And the key word is way. Mm -hmm. Typically, when we think of a way, you're walking along a way. Well, he picks on two animals, both which don't have or don't move by their feet. The bird flies and the snake slithers. And this is the way. And it's, uh, they're, they're animals that are puzzling that God created. Okay, now the third one, the way of a ship on the high seas. Okay, the ship is like going through the ocean or the, the sea. And what is the path? What do you see that it leaves behind? Nothing. It leaves nothing behind. Okay, so it's, it's this, this path through the sea. Now then this builds up to the last one, the way of a man with a virgin. And it's like, huh? Why in the world are you all of a sudden bringing up uh, romantic marital love? And plus, this would be a way of a man with a virgin. It is a virgin. This would be like uh, a honeymoon kind of uh, a scenario. It's another creational design that God made. So the first three, the way of the eagle in the sky, there you have the heavens. Then the way of the rock, or the way of the serpent on the rock, there's the earth. And then third, you have the ship on the water. So this is likely a recalling back to the Genesis created order with the heavens, the waters, and the, and the land, and then the creation of man, who is commissioned to fill the earth. Okay, so none of these have or leave any kind of a trace. Now look at the adulterous woman in verse 20. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth. Oh, by wiping her mouth, what is she doing? She's not leaving any signs that anything has happened. And this is clearly a metaphor for uh, uh, sexual congress, okay? And says, I have done no wrong. Okay, so she's like doing something. And what does she do? She, does, she commits an act that totally upends the created order. Okay, um, when we... Uh, this whole idea of the adulteress and uh, adultery, she has committed an act that is uh, potentially uh, upending the descendants of her, of her husband. Okay, that's one of the uh, things I wrote about this summer. Adultery was considered an extremely heinous sin, not so much because of the sexual components, but because of its consequences. Because of this woman's act, who the the identity of her children is now brought into question. And, and it's an upending of the creation order, of, of the society's order. And so by eating and then wiping her mouth, she's like, nobody knows. And I can do whatever I want sexually. And so this highlights the contrast between the wonderful thing, which would be the virgin, and sexual chastity, and then the adulteress who has committed an act that she seems or considers to be completely... Um, uh, unimportant, and she leaves no trace about it. How are you doing? You following me? Okay. I think so. 
Okay, so now let's wrap this up. Let's go to the last three. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. So these are four terrible things. Terrible things that destroy the created order. Oh, what were we talking about in the first pair? The first set? Created the created order. order. You got it. Okay, this is the way God designed things. They're wonderful. Here's things that totally upend it. First one, a slave when he becomes king. Now we might think through, well, what's the big deal there? When you think through the Old Testament, and this gets into your Amos stuff a little bit too, God is the one that appoints kings. He is the one that puts a king in a position of power by anointing through the prophet, so on and so forth. Okay, well, what happens when somebody else usurps the power of the king and then becomes king illegitimately? Okay, and it creates a devastating, cascading yeah. effect for a culture. You see it in uh, various different nations. You see it in, in the nation of Israel and the Bible. You know, one guy axes another guy, and then, you know, well, what? you don't have any right to the throne. Okay, so then he gets creamed, and, and it creates a big mess. So that's number one, a slave when he becomes king. Two, a fool when he's filled with food. Like a fool is eating more than his allotted portion. In other words, what is being rewarded is folly. What kind of an effect is that going to have on the social order? A very negative effect. It's something mm -hmm. that's going to overturn the earth. So we have uh, the first two. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. This one I had to struggle with a little bit, but it's basically... Uh, um, it's the woman. Don't, don't pity the woman here. She's bad. <laughs> I was like, is this some poor woman that's married to some guy and he hates her? And so I was kind of like, is that what's going on here? And it's not okay. The, the, this woman is, is a, like a hated woman. Everybody realizes she's like bad news. Well, what happens when a guy marries a bad news kind of a girl? What is it going to do to the social order? Bad news. Bad news. You got it. <laughs> All right. It's it's like he married a woman that's going to make a mess of his home life. And then that's going to create problems where? In society. Okay. So the, the whole ordering of creation based upon the ordering of the home, uh, that's what these Proverbs are dealing with. And then finally, a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. So the maidservant... You know, she appeals to the man, the husband, the the head of the home, and then what is what what she replaces uh, her her uh, her mistress, and this may have a regal sense. It may be like the queen mother is displaced. I'm not entirely sure about that, but the word for mistress is the same word as the man at the end of um, the man with a virgin. So there's like a connection. Uh, here. And the mistress is parallel with the slave. So in verse 22, you have a slave when he becomes king. Yep. And then at the end of verse 23, you have the maidservant when she displaces her mistress. So in both of these situations, they may, it may have a regal, like in the, in the uh, royal family, uh, kind of a setting. Uh, but in either sense, still, you have this one woman who's mis who is who is displacing and disinheriting uh, the the other woman. And what does this cause? This causes an upending of the uh, created order. Mm. So why is it that we have these proverbs of Ugur? Why is he why is he um, teaching us this wisdom? It's actually the same the same practical theological. 
uh, truth that that I've I've been mentioning throughout uh, this time period. And the main idea is this idea of contentment. You know, where has God placed you in this life? Okay, He has placed you in a position of power and influence. He has placed you in a position of of wealth. He has placed you in a position of poverty. Uh, in our day and age, we can advance our our lot in life, and Paul has something to say about that. But um, at the means by which you pursue that advancement needs to be in the fear of the Lord. And these people are pursuing their own desires, and what does it do? It creates a mess out of the created order. So, God's design for creation, what is it? It's wonderful. That's what he said. Okay, three things are too wonderful for me, four uh, I cannot comprehend. Uh, but beware, uh, be aware of the three, three things that overturn the earth and live in light of the wisdom of Agur. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings podcast.